Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Sabah al-khair. Good morning, dear listeners. You're listening to Radio 3CR on 855 AM and Palestine Remembered with Robert Martin, Nasser Mashni and Yusuf Ahmed al-Rimawi. Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English-language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Good morning, Robert. Good morning, Yusuf. Good morning, listeners. So another uh, another show, another Saturday, another Palestine Remembered show. And another time that you and I get together and have a laugh. I, I wish some people could actually see, maybe not see, uh, but we, we often have, we have tears coming out of our eyes from the joy because we, we do speak about very, very serious things, but we also But it's have important to enjoy what you're doing. Absolutely. So what do we have uh, this week, uh, Robert? This week we've got Nora Erekat who has been travelling Australia uh, talking about Palestine. She's a humanitarian, a human rights lawyer and attorney. Mm. Uh, and Nasser went and did an exclusive for us. So that's a fantastic opportunity. So I know our listeners will enjoy that. Uh, and next week we've also got Alfat who is a, um, a author who we were lucky enough to go and speak. Very, very moving. And you had the opportunity of doing a uh, an interview, and I look forward to, uh, to hearing that next week as well. So. so two amazing Palestinians visiting Australia, one from America, one from Lebanon, and we will start with our guest from America. Tell us a little bit about uh, Nora Robert. Uh, so Nora is a human rights attorney and assistant professor at George Mason University. Her research includes humanitarian law, refugee law, national security law, and critical race theory. So that's just the beginning, Yusuf. She's a co-founding editor of Jalzeria. How do you say that word? Jadalia. Jadalia is on as an editorial committee member of the Journal of Palestine Studies. Prior to joining GMU's faculty, she served as legal counsel for congressional subcommittee in the House of Representatives as a legal advocate for the Battle Resource Centre for Palestinian Refugees and Residency Rights and as the national grassroots organiser and legal advocate at the US campaign to end the Israeli occupation. She is a co-founding board member of the DC Palestinian Film and Arts Festival and is a board member of the Institute of Policy Studies. Very impressive. Well, I haven't finished, Yusuf. Go on. I'm all ears. In fact, what we'll have to do is we're going to actually have to cut the interview because her bio is Hmm. so impressive. Uh, More recently, Nora released a pedagogical project on the Gaza Strip and Palestine, which includes a short multimeter documentary, Gaza in Context, that rehabilitates Israel wars on Gaza within the settler colonial framework. She's also the producer of a short video, Black Palestinian Solidarity. Nora's media appearances include CNN, MSBC, Fox News, PBS NewsHour, BBC World Service, NPR, Democracy Now! and Al Jazeera. 
And now, and now 3CR. And now this will be the pinnacle yes. of her. So above congratulations. All, above all. Well, this is it. This will be the, the flagship. This will take her places. Of course. So, uh, so you're welcome, Nora. Uh, no problems. She's published in The Nation, The New York Times, The Los Angeles Review of Books, Huffington Post, Jezebel, International Law Grills, The Hill, The Foreign Policy, among others. Norda is the author of Justice for Some, Law as Politics in the Question of Palestine, forthcoming Stanford University Press 2019. Now, that is one hell of an of introduction. <laughs> well, that's very impressive. Uh, I want to ask you before we uh, move on to uh, the interview, when was the last time you uh, mentioned or used the word pedagogical in your well, life? Well, it's funny that you are, it's, I mean, I'm on a pedagogical journey at the moment, <laughs> okay. which is obviously an educational journey, Yusuf. Okay. And the fact I that know you, we pedagogy use is one of your favorite words. Well, it's something that I feel that I was born to do. <laughs> So, thank, right. thank you very much. Without further uh, delay, uh, let's uh, <laughs> listen to Nasser's interview with uh, Noura Arikat, who was in Melbourne last week. Okay, I'm joined by super powerhouse Palestinian woman, Noura Arikat. Noura, thank you so much for coming and joining us in Australia. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Noura, now you've spoken in Adelaide, Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, Edward Said Memorial Lecture in Adelaide, um, feature program, which is phenomenal. You had a, a varying different number of talks, but in, in Melbourne you spoke particularly, and the things that um, I found most interesting was the connection between our movement and other movements in the world. Can you talk to us about that? Absolutely. So, you know, there's a way that people already understand that all oppression is united and that, you know, mechanisms, mil- technologies of military and carceral dominations are things that uh, super powers share with one another in terms of states. And I think what gets missed is, in fact, that those marginalized communities are also united in the ways that we endure that violence and also in the ways that we know to resist. And so some of what I was, that, that, that's one way to think about it, that there's this sameness. But the other thing is to think about it is how are we resisting together and for one another and how is our freedom basically entwined? That one idea of freedom is that if we get accepted by the establishment as it is, basically the violence continues, but we're accepted from it. It's no longer inflicted upon us, but it continues to be inflicted upon everybody else. If you think about it like that, then the work that has to be done is that we actually need to end the violence full stop. And if it's happening... If it's happening to us, that means it's happening to others and that we cannot we cannot resist it by simply preaching or demanding, you know, inclusion in the system so that we're spared, but that we're actually demanding that the system be changed. And you've been this powerhouse for a long time. Now, uh, University of Berkeley, was it? Undergrad in law school. Yeah, correct. So tell, the, the, there was really, I heard an uh, exciting story about your youth activism. Share that with our, our audience. Sure. So I was, I was talking to a group of uh, young people, which was really great, and I know they didn't know me 20 years ago. <laughs> they're, they're probably, you know, uh, a decade and some change. And, and I wanted to let them know that although you see before you now somebody who's accepted as a professor and an, and an attorney and, you know, within this respectability politics, I'm a radical that comes up in movement. And that, you know, I, I've been working uh, all my life, as many people who of conviction do, of just trying to figure out what is the formula to get free. So I've tried everything 
from you know advocacy, grassroots organizing, legislative advocacy, um, legal advocacy to sue people, uh, going to the UN, art, culture, you name it. And so, but it, it starts as a, a university student activist. And as a university activist, when Ariel Sharon was elected into office the second time on February 6, 2001, we students, um, naming ourselves the Students for Justice in Palestine, blocked Sather Gate in the middle of UC Berkeley's campus, um, unfurled a banner that said divest from apartheid Israel before there was a BDS campaign in 2005, set up, there's, you know, three entrances in Sather Gate, so we blocked the middle and then one entrance was open and said Israelis only and one entrance was also blocked called that said Palestinians and we put on some guerrilla theater and and asked students to join us until we had something like 300 students who were blocking the gate with us in this action that basically goes in you know national everybody now hears about it and we continue our activism on campus in that way and and the logic of our activism was that we wanted we weren't demanding anything yet but we wanted to disrupt business as usual to demonstrate the abnormality of the violence of occupation and settler colonialism and apartheid. And so one of our next actions was literally taking over a building during midterm exams, asking all the students and the teachers to leave, chaining the doors locked, and then sitting in front until we got, we, were, we didn't move until we were arrested. Um, and, and our demands crystallized into divesting UC Berkeley's holdings from all companies that are invested in Israel at something worth, I think it was $5,000 or more. Mm-hmm. Now, you're, you're, you're a, um, leading the charge into academia. You're untenured and you're outspoken. Now, we spoke earlier on in the session about um, <laughs> academics in you know, the space that you occupy being quiet on Palestine until you get tenure. But you haven't. Um, so I'm definitely not leading the charge. I'm certainly continuing the legacy of of so many that have made this sacrifice and fought for this cause. Uh, all of us doing we it had together. Stephen Salita didn't get his tenure. You know what's worse? Stephen had tenure, and they revoked it. No. That's how. One, you know, it's 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 the mythology that tenure is a protection for everything, and two, the fact that that's how vicious the punishment can be if you stand up for Palestine. So Stephen does everything, has six books published, and still has his tenure revoked, which is, you know, this is what we're up against. In my case, it's it's um, a little bit different because I, for me, the academy is a second career. My first career is as a human rights attorney and an advocate. I'm planting BDS campaigns across the U.S. I'm actually going to Geneva to advocate for Palestinian refugee and residency rights and so on and so forth. I'm already in the media. I'm already an activist. When I transitioned to the academy, my, you know, my portfolio already speaks for itself. And I had a choice. I can either reinvent myself to be somebody that's quite distant from all the things that I care about so much, or I can continue. And I tried to tread both, but when push came to shove, when there were when there was a need to speak on something, because the, the thing the, the the saying goes is that you just are quiet on, on Palestine until you get tenure and then you can say whatever you want. But for me the cat was already out of the bag with me. And then the second thing to be honest for me was that I didn't want to do that. 
I didn't want to do that. I wanted. I felt like I was already living my life's purpose. Who knew if I was going to even live long enough to get tenure? Who knew if I was going to get tenure at all? And so why wasn't I do, doing what I believed in every day, come what may? And, and that's what I've lived by. Um, and I also have to say that all of the spaces that I've moved forward in are movement victories. So as long as the movement stays robust and as long as the movement becomes even more strong, that's, that gives me the space and the safety to be able to continue to, to, to proceed with, with that kind of um, conviction and fearlessness. It's not mine. That's what the movement gives me. So last week, the uh, Israeli Knesset passed the Nation State Bill and uh, made it apparent and clear to everyone we're actually legislating apartheid. What, what, how strategically do you think this is going to play out? So the thing is, Israel's already been practicing apartheid, has 50 laws that on their face either privilege Jews in the state or disenfranchise or uh, are discriminate against Palestinians. Any lawyer can go through that and, and tell you that it is a de, de jure apartheid regime as the UN Economic Council on Southwest Asia did conclude in 2017, which is why the US and Israel forced UN ESQA to actually shelve the, the report. So we've already known this. What Israel has been able to get around is to say that there is one law for the world and another law for itself because it is going to be the site of exception. So whatever we've considered violence, discriminatory, racist, immoral, will be accepted in Israel because it's done in the name of Jewish emancipation and Jewish freedom and Jewish freedom from violence. And that logic has been both what has troubled people who hear this, and it's also been um, why Israel is able to get away with literally murder in that you know framework of exception and continue. So here we have yet another brazen act. And one would think, okay, that's it. Cat's out of the bag. Now everybody knows. It's not going to be enough. It's not going to be enough because we haven't disrupted this framework of exception that insulates Israel. We haven't gone to the heart of the matter, which is you want us to believe that everything Israel does is fine because it's actually furthering Jewish freedom. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about what's necessary for Jews to be safe in the world and how to end uh, systematic anti-Jewish bigotry. And let's talk about how it's not mutually exclusive with ensuring the livelihoods and the human rights of everybody else, obviously Palestinians, first and foremost, who are bearing the primary brunt of it. Um, and so the battle against us ahead of us is not one of just truth sharing. It's actually having different conversations and asking different questions. As a legal matter, the difference will be that now Israel, as a legal obligation, has an obligation to discriminate against its population that is not Jewish. It's no longer just a practice. It has a constitutional obligation to do so, and it will do so with the taxpayer money of Muslim and, Christ, uh, Muslim and Christian Palestinians. That's the irony. Um, now, refugees are a huge part of um, the, the struggle for Palestine and for justice for the Palestinians. And, and often, you know, they're forgotten about uh, whether they'll, you know, in Yarmouk we saw what happened in, in Syria there or in Lebanon, you know, with the, the challenges they have with employment. How, how do, where, where's, where's our hope? What's our, what can we do there? Our hope for the refugees is to continue to hope and to fight for them and never to forget one thing. So one of the phenomenons 
recent phenomena in the United States has been this resurgence and renewal of black Palestinian solidarity. And on the one hand, it's the emphasis of so much of the similarities and joint struggle. On the other hand, and what we're not hearing are the ruptures that set us apart very much, right? So for the black struggle, there isn't kind of a terminal end of if there can be a restoration of indigenous sovereignty and the end of settler colonialism, they can be free. Whereas in the case of Palestinians, that's still kind of within the horizon and the framework. On the other hand, for Palestinians who look at black people and think this isn't just about getting equality, refugees need to return, and that's central to the Palestinian struggle. It's actually about allowing refugees to be on their homelands. The settler colonial nature of this makes it a territorial conflict and not just a constitutional one and how to organize a state. And, you know, the important thing to remember is that refugees are still the heartbeat of Palestine, and and they may not return. They may choose not to return, but they should at least have the choice. And it's even, you know, at a more basic level, it's about Israel recognizing that they were there Mm -hmm. and they belong. And that's what the nation state law does, too. It is to consecrate Palestinian erasure from the land, that they were never there. They never had a right to be there. And so um, it's part and parcel of the struggle. I think we need to maintain hope. We don't have a right. I think it's very selfish. If we stop hoping, because hope is what, it's like faith. We are fighting for something we don't necessarily know exists, but we believe it and we feel it. And that's a faith and that's hope. And so we have to uh, move forward uh, with that conviction because there is no other alternative except for giving up. And that's not an option. And, and finally, in the last couple of minutes, a, a message to our listeners. I want to say thank you. To the to Australia for hosting me with such generosity and grace, and that I see you. And what I've heard is that you know on the ground, Australian you know Australians and Indigenous nations do not agree with their government, and and that seems to be the case across the board. So thank you for that. The other message that I would give is that if you really, really, really believe in freedom. Uh, for Palestinians and for Palestine, that that work begins here in Australia, and it means standing up against ongoing settler colonization, the 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 the, the la- you know not recognizing indigenous sovereignty, not entering into treaties, the desecration of homelands. Now this site. Uh, the jupe warring uh, site of, of, of the birthing tree, 3,000 trees to make room for a highway in the state of Victoria. I mean, this is ongoing settler colonialism. It never ended. It doesn't end. There is still a war on the native population. And so if you believe in the struggle for Palestine, you must begin that struggle here and fight for uh, indigenous freedom. So Nelson Mandela said, you know, we know too well our freedom is incomplete without the freedom of the Palestinians. And if Nelson Mandela can say that after 27 years on Robben Island, then we as Palestinians know our freedom's incomplete without all Indigenous peoples having uh, their right to self-determination. Nuna, thank you so very much. And we look forward to welcoming you back when you do a book tour next year. Yay! In our summer. Nuna's been very cold here. Thanks so much. (laughs) That was Nora Erika talking to Nasa Mashni exclusively with us on 3CR. So let's move on to the next subject, which is the Israelis' nation-state bill, which is legalising racism and apartheid. The most recent 
um, horrible thing coming out from the Knesset is what is called the Nation State Bill. And in this nation, I will read, it's more than 11 items, but we will read uh, part of the items. The first one is called Basic Principles. A. The land of Israel is the historical homeland of the Jewish people in which the state of Israel was established. B. The state of Israel is the national home of the Jewish people in which it fulfills its natural cultural, religious, and historical right of self-determination. C. The right to exercise national self-determination in the state of Israel is unique to the Jewish people. Now, before we move on to next ones, now, like you said, Robert, before the interview, um, finally Israel has come out and uh, shown us uh, the real face, uh, because well, that's the, what they've been doing uh, anyway. Yeah. But over the years, they say that they're equal, even for the, the Palestinians. They always say that the Arabs and the Jews are equal. Mm. But this clearly is saying that they're not. The distinction between national rights and citizenship right is something that the Palestinian Israelis know very well, because while they were the citizens of the Israel, they don't have any rights as nas- na- members of the nation. Mm. The nation has always been, if you are a Jew, uh, and if you are a Muslim, whether uh, Druze or uh, uh, Sunni or whatever, or if you are Christian, Just a Palestinian, non-Jew, then you do not belong to the nation. Okay. Now, they've been doing that since day one, since uh, since uh, May 15th, 1948. But they've been employing sophisticated means to hide it. Uh, unlike the South Africa, it was very blatant. Finally, they have come out. Yeah. Now, there is also um, another item I would like to uh, read, which is number three, which is called the capital of the state. And it says, Jerusalem, complete and united, is the capital of Israel. Now, what that means is that an occupied territory, occupied in 1967, in which they agreed to negotiate with the Palestinians under international pressures in 1991 on the principle of land for peace. Land for peace, simple. Uh, Israel wants peace, it has to give back the land. And the land includes any land occupied in June 1967, which is, of course, which includes, of course, Jerusalem. East Jerusalem. Now, nevertheless, they came up with the term Greater Jerusalem Municipality to annex the parts of Jerusalem occupied in 67 to the parts of Jerusalem occupied in 48. And there is no such mention of, you know, the fact that it is against the international law and it is against even their uh, um, their own laws and it's against the principles upon which they agreed to negotiate with the Arabs. What, has this come because Trump has been so brazen and upfront about saying basically Israel can do whatever it's like? Is that a part of it? That's a very good question. And uh, their parliament, the Knesset in 1981, annexed uh, Jerusalem. Um, including East Jerusalem, to Israel. Uh, So that's not the first time they speak about it as part of uh, Israel. But nevertheless, the momentum, the momentum that the Zionists have gained after the Trump's announcement of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel is unprecedented. Never in history has Israel been very vicious when it comes to the colonization of Jerusalem, which is different to the colonization of West Bank, because if you know the settlers, and you've you've seen settlements in uh, West Bank, they are top of the 
hills whereas in jerusalem it is enclaved enclaved type of settlements which means that they occupy an apartment in a building a room in an apartment a roof of something and then they they make their life miserable for the neighborhood well they make everybody miserable around them on purpose and therefore um, if you ask me if this is new or no it's not new they've always wanted jerusalem they've always worked for greater jerusalem municipality and they've done everything they can to Jewdize the Arab nature yeah. of the city, whether Muslim or Christian. And again, Palestinians, what Palestinians say that they are not against Judaism, they are against the Jewadization yeah. of Arab land and Arab history yeah. and Arab memory, whether Muslim or Christian. And and before we move on to the next topic, in the first point, they made they made an absurd, an absurd and ridiculous statement by saying that the right to exercise national self-determination. When in history, when in history has the occupier demanded self-determination? Well, they haven't. It's against law. It's against logic. It's against logic. It's against against common sense. Except except in Palestine. It seems so. The colonizer, the colonizer, the one who came with force, the one who was who built a state with violence and terrorism says that we have the right for self-determination. Not the colonized people, not the occupied people, not the people who paid the price of the establishment of this rogue state that's called Israel. So that's very absurd to hear Mm. the Knesset approve a term that calls for the Jewish people of Israel for self-determination. It seems that most things Israel do... Of Palestinians, the the landowners. It seems though that everything Israel do goes against logic. Mm. It just seems to be the way. And that's what they have finally said it. And now even on language, um, Israel used to pride itself as being a bilingual state. Now here, in in, in the language, the state's language is Hebrew. Period. Period. Which means that when you visit Israel next time, do not be surprised if they take the names in Arabic. Uh, on on street signs. Do not be surprised if they take the Arabic content content of any government uh, 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 letterheads or etc. Because it's no longer it's no longer accepting the diversity even in language. That's actually happening in Hebron on the street signs. They're actually taking the the Arabic off and mm. they're only put doing it in Hebrew. But also what they are doing what they're doing is that even the Hebrew names, they Hebrewized the Arabic it. names. For example, yes. my city, Safad, Safad, has always been Safad, S-A-F-A-D. That's the transliteration of its Arabic name, Safad. Now they came and they said, no, it's not Safad, it's Tzfad, Tzfad. And then Z-F-A, and they just changed it Tzfad. Another, another town, small town, the town of Lubia, a small town, maybe a village near uh, Safad. It's called Lubia. Now, they erased the the village and they changed the name to Luvi. Luvi, not Lubia. So they didn't keep the original name, Luvi. Not to mean, not, uh, and then they transliterated in Arabic to Luvi. So even if you read Arabic, you are, you are reading it like the way the, the Israelis want you to read it. And they erased the original name. Not to mention Niafa, not to mention Akka, not to mention Al Quds, not to mention a long list of names. So they Hebrewized the Arabic names. And now they stopped even acknowledging that Arabic is part of the language, the official language. So also when it comes to the settlements, 
There is a term number seven that says the state views the development of Jewish settlement as national value and will act to encourage and promote its establishment and consolidation. What that means is not only that they will not stop settlement, they will actually put it as part of their values. So it is value, it's, it's our values to continue colonizing Arab lands. And in fact, settlement is a light term for colonialism. Yeah, they shouldn't use the word settlement because yeah. the settlement gives the, the idea that it's legal. It's, 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 it's accepted and it's, it's legal, yeah. but nevertheless, it's colonial. It it's is colonial, colonization yeah. of Arab land. It's theft of land. Yeah. They steal land and they build settlements. That, and, and when they say Israeli settlement, it's also another lie. Because if you are a Palestinian Israeli, you cannot live in these settlements. No. So it's not Israeli settlement. It's Jewish colonial projects on Palestinian land. Uh, so we can go on and on, Robert, uh, in our reflections on the bill. But first of all, it not only did it kill the, two, the, the two-state solution, it killed any solution. It killed any solution because one-state solution should cannot be built on apartheid. And this is legalizing apartheid. This is legalizing crime. This is legalizing racism and hate. And this is erasing the Palestinian Arab history, which is way before even the first uh, Hebrew state in Palestine, because the Canaanites have been in Palestine way before the, the Hebrews came and after. What this bill didn't say is that on the expense of the landowners. Well, as far as I'm concerned, the Palestinians don't exist. Anyway, we'll come back to this point later. Thank you, Robert, uh, for uh, another uh, good uh, well, thank episode. Thank you, Yusuf. Thank uh, you. And, and then just tell me, hmm. your, your Arabic show again, because last Mon- week I really enjoyed it again. <laughs> Monday, 10 p.m. So Monday, 10 p.m. So people, they should join in. Have a listen. Great show. Fantastic. And I'm in Hunak. I'm from there. And also, stay tuned, uh, Robert. And if there are corrections in grammar, let me know. 100%. I will let you know again. So until we meet next uh, time uh, on Saturday, 9.30 in the morning, this is Robert Martin, Nasser Mashni, and Yusuf Rimawi wishing you the best of time. And salam.